Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 2nd, we're studying 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. St. Paul urges Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus in both the content of his teaching and in the example he sets for the saints under his care. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. Thank you for letting me come back, and happy November to you and to all of our listeners. God's blessings as we get to celebrate being God's saints. Indeed. Pastor Ill, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, you tell me that there's a new section beginning here in this text. So give me the context leading up to this. What do we need to know? Why do you say that everything that comes before is, is the first section, and now we're beginning something new? Sure. So just to get it in our ears, First uh, Timothy 4, 6 goes like this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. But every time that we see these things, we have to ask, what things? So what things is it that St. Paul is talking to uh, Timothy about? And I believe that he is talking about everything that Paul has said um, earlier in 1 Timothy 4, that, or in, sorry, in all of 1 Timothy, that he is making a move from, uh, here is the content of the doctrine that you should be teaching, to here's how you should be putting these things that come um, all the way through 1 Timothy up until now uh, to the saints. So as we go along, everything that I've said before, this is what you're supposed to do here in our reading this morning in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16 and going on. It talks about how it is that Timothy, as a pastor, is to relate that to the people in his care. Does that, does that make sense, Pastor Apple? Yes. So prior to this text, we get the doctrinal content. Here is what you are to teach. And now from this point forward, we're going to get more of the, here's how to teach it. Here's how to go about the act of being the pastor, giving these goods to the saints in your care. Right. So what what is that? I mean, just as a, as a as a summary, what is some of that content? What is that context that we've got that St. Paul's told Timothy, hey, this is what you need to teach. That would be the good content of faith in Christ Jesus, not to be uh, taken away. And the so the broader context is that Paul is talking about um, everything that it is to be a Christian and everything it is to gather together as God's saints and God's people. But in the more immediate context, earlier in chapter 4, it talks about the particular uh, false teachings that were arising where Timothy was serving, and things that Paul saw coming, uh, coming up really soon, uh, things that, that some might call heresies and others might call false teachings, but regardless of what you call them, are really scary things, as this teaching of Jesus is being distorted. And so... In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it talks about how there are people who are coming in who are insincere and liars, uh, committing themselves to the teachings of uh, deceitful spirits and demons. That's really not a good thing. And so in the context of false teaching in the church, Paul wants to tell Timothy, Make sure that you're teaching the good doctrine, the things that I was saying in chapter 3 and chapter 2 about being committed to Jesus, about not letting the church be pulled into any kind of false doctrine, and that you would always have a really careful eye on what you are teaching and what the people that you are teaching are believing. Uh, so watch watch yourself and the Christians, as it's going to say a little bit later here in chapter 4. We'll get to that, I'm sure, in a few minutes. 
One more question by way of introduction, Pastor L. Particularly, as you mentioned, this text gives instructions to Timothy as to how to be a pastor. And this is a, a challenge, I think, throughout the letter uh, to Timothy, but particularly here, where it's speaking to Timothy as a pastor, not quite as much of the doctrinal content that we saw earlier. For example, one fifteen, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's really easy for any Christian to read and apply to himself or herself. As Paul makes the turn, though, here to start talking more particularly to Timothy as to how to go about being a pastor there in Ephesus, and then with other parts of the letter as well that we've seen, how does a lay Christian read a letter like this, this section particularly, and apply it to their own lives? That's a really great and really important question. Uh, one of the more uh, more popular readings from First Timothy is uh, coming up for us today in verses 12 and 13, um, or especially in verse 12, where it talks about, let, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, and I've heard this at a lot of youth gatherings and youth events, but first and foremost, this isn't written to the, the young people of the church. This is first and foremost and primarily written for, uh, particularly for Timothy, a young pastor. By young pastor, we mean something under 40. Um, and I guess, I guess it dawns on me thinking of you, who's a young pastor who is, uh, at least for a little while yet, uh, younger than 40. So, uh, Pastor Apple, let nobody look down on you for your youth, uh, for what it's worth. But, Thank you. Um, is there a place for this to be kind of secondarily read by all Christians today, especially our young Christians? Absolutely. But let's make sure that we read this whole text, all of 1 Timothy in context, that first and foremost, this is sent to one person. It is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God that does not change. And it is helpful and beneficial for the man of God for teaching, for preaching, for rebuke, and for exhortation, for training in godliness. But ultimately, we want to be really careful that we not ignore the fact that it was written first and foremost for Timothy and only secondarily for, for all pastors and then for all of us. Helpful words there as we consider these for all Christians who are listening today. So let's read the text. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. That is our text for today, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. Pastor Ill, the first verse, we've talked about these things, everything that precedes. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers. Real briefly, when Paul says, put these things before the brothers, and I'm not sure that I have an answer on this, but I'm curious what you think. Is before the brothers referring to all Christians, or is before the brothers referring to fellow pastors there in Ephesus. We've talked a little bit about how Timothy perhaps is not only a pastor in Ephesus, but also in charge of other pastors to appoint them. But what do you, what do you think there? Uh, as he says before the brothers, he uses the term, uh, uh, the, the word brothers or the Greek word adelphos, uh, which refers in general to the whole church. Um, I know that some translations uh, will sometimes read it as brothers and sisters, 
um, wherever it occurs in the New Testament, and especially wherever it occurs in Paul. And so usually that term brothers applies to the whole church, not only to uh, to what we might call today the brotherhood of, of pastors. So this, this is, uh, in my view, a, a general term for the whole church, for all the saints. Uh, put this before before all the Christians, not just exclusively before the pastors. That makes good sense. And part of the reason I think I, I asked the question is because that is often how fellow pastors will refer to each other as brothers. And and I, I think I do think as he as Paul continues in this text, seeing brothers here not so exclusively as pastors, but as the full Christian church does make good sense. So thank you for that. Now, more on point. Paul continues, he says, if you do these things, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Let's let's talk about that that phrase. What does it mean for Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? As Paul calls him to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, and a little bit later he's going to go on, and he's going to talk about the good doctrine that you have followed. And I, I think that when we start talking about good showing up two times in one verse, we really need to uh, kind of italicize that. Uh, when the scriptures were written, uh, they didn't have any italics or bold or underline. And so if you wanted to emphasize something, if you wanted to lean into that point, you would use the same word twice. And that would get people's attention. Oh, look, he's using the same word. It's got, it's got this effect to it. It comes with some oomph. And so he talks about a good servant of Christ Jesus and good doctrine. And this calls back to mind the words of Jesus to the young ruler, uh, as he says, only God is good. If Timothy is going to be a good servant of God, and if he is going to be in the good doctrine that he has been given by God, then that means that Timothy has a connection to God. It is God who is good, therefore it is God who makes good servants, and it is God who makes good doctrine. And so this is implying uh, and leaning into this idea. Timothy, be connected to God. Deliver to them what you have received, not from yourself, not from your logic or your studies, not from having a cool theology degree or, or some kind of magical insights from your ordination. No! Rely on who God has made you in the waters of baptism and in the gift of this laying on of hands that you've received and in the good doctrine that you have that is all centered around Jesus. Who you are as a good servant is centered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The good doctrine that you have is centered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're thinking, teaching, exhorting, and preaching about anything else but the death and resurrection of Jesus and the good doctrine that he has brought for you and for all people, then you're... you're you're starting to, to get farther and farther afield. Be a good servant centered in Jesus with the good doctrine centered in Jesus, because only God is good, and that is the revelation of Jesus himself. I think you're exactly right to point out the significance of that word good, and it, I think it stands out even in English as well, certainly in the Greek, but even in English, the connection between a good servant and the good doctrine and I love the connection that you make to Jesus' own words that no one is good but God alone. And of course, within the context in which he says that, he makes you he makes you know that that he's God as well, and so he is the good one. And to connect all of that again to go to go back to that very first trustworthy saying here in this epistle that it is Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That good doctrine was was good for Paul and it makes him good in Christ. It does the same for Timothy here, and it does the same for all who now hear him, all the brothers before whom he is placing these things, this teaching that Paul is reciting here in this epistle. And so the, the connection there is is huge. And I think it's, I mean, it's worth pointing out too, what makes him a good servant? It is, it is Christ, and it is that faithfulness to Christ, the one who has been faithful to Timothy. It's not, it's not any sort of earthly success. I'm, I'm throwing air quotes around that word success, Pastor L. You, you can't see that. But, but that's what makes a good servant, is faithfulness to the one who is good, Jesus. Go ahead. Uh, if you'll permit me a quick story, here at Trinity, uh, I have 
uh, sermon notes that the children of the congregation will fill out. Um, and, and maybe some of our listeners did sermon notes back in their day. Uh, but a lot of the children who fill out the sermon notes here are younger. And so instead of having them write out sentences, it's really hard to listen to a sermon and write sentences at the same time. And so they listen for key words like Jesus and God, cross and forgiveness. And one day after church, I had a, a young man, uh, probably in probably in second or third grade, bounce up to me and he said, Pastor, I have a problem with the sermon notes. I thought, uh-oh, what's going on? And he said, you talk about Jesus too much. Uh, and my face kind of like expressed a little bit of shock and awe. And I said, what do you mean, man? And he said, he said, well, here. And he held out his sermon note form and he had made really big tally marks uh, for, I guess, the 25 or 30 references of Jesus. And he said, I ran out of room in the Jesus box. You talk about Jesus too much. And I said, or you just make your tally marks too big. Smaller tally <laughs> marks, more Jesus. Uh, but this is the, the good doctrine, is doctrine that talks about Jesus. If we get accused of talking about Jesus too much, I would argue that is the good doctrine. Uh, we have, as, as pastors and as Christians, nothing else to believe and nothing else to give than this news that Jesus has died for me. Uh, and certainly we recognize our own sin, just like you were talking about with Paul. And so as we see that, the more we get accused of talking maybe too much about Jesus, the better off we are doing. Right. And, and particularly Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Savior is going to be the, the theme of that. Not the not only that we mention his name often, but what are we saying about him? Is is he doing the saving? And I know in, in your preaching, that is what you are preaching, is that because that's what you're saying right now, is that he is the one doing the saving. And isn't, I mean, you know, it's something that it these are the, as we look back at the text, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The training ground for pastors is this. It is the words of the faith, the Holy Scriptures, the teaching of the truth, the good doctrine. That is the training for pastors. That's not to say that there aren't other things that it's good for pastors to know how to do and for them to be trained in. But the primary training ground of pastors is this good news that is for them and it is for their hearers. Exactly. Um, and as we talk sometimes about good doctrine, um, other places in Scripture, it talks about that good doctrine as, as what you have received. Um, uh Permit me a, a Greek word, since you know, sharper iron is a little bit of a nerdy Bible study, and I think being a biblical nerd is a really good thing. But the word for uh, for what you have in Greek is the word kateko, uh, which sounds an awful lot, not surprisingly, like our word catechism. And so when we talk about what we have, these are the good teachings of God that are included in our catechism, the Ten Commandments and the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, teaching about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the forgiveness of God that is spoken to Christians. That's what we have. That is our, our kateko, our catechism, those things that we all as Christians have been trained in. That's not the word that gets used here in 1 Timothy 4.6, but I think it is the intent. that The good teaching is, is what we have been taught, and, and so we continue to dedicate ourselves to that. I remember that when I was in when I was in seminary, uh, you know, I was I was really close to the end, and I remember one of my professors who was in charge of of kind of looking at all of us and saying, "Are you are you really ready to go be a pastor?" And he said, "So, the professors want to talk to you. Two professors to each one of you. It'll be fun." And I thought, I don't know about that, but then he said, "I really want to make sure that you guys can express the faith." in accordance with the catechism. Obviously, you're going to go beyond just what the words of the catechism say, but but you will speak, hopefully, with your professors in these words of what we have in this good doctrine that you have learned uh, before you came to seminary and through seminary, that you will continue to learn and to teach. And we want to hear you in that pattern, that pattern of good teaching. And those words continue to, to echo in my ears. When I walk into confirmation classes and Bible studies as I prepare for sermons and in all that I do of let's speak in the pattern of the good teaching that we have, not limiting ourselves, obviously, to the words of, of Luther's small catechism, but saying, hey, 
everything we do as good servants of Christ Jesus is connected to this good doctrine. Well, I appreciate you bringing out the catechism there because it does it does go to go back to what we we're saying about Jesus is the center of it all. That doesn't mean that like we only speak the word Jesus or something like that. That center propels us out into all of doctrine. We, we've talked about previously on this show that that there is a, a body of doctrine, that it is one body, it is one unit, and the center is Christ crucified and risen for sinners. But it goes beyond that. It, it expands outward, and then it always comes back to that. So as as we keep focused on these central truths that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, we're propelled outward into all of the teaching, which always then throws us back to the middle. And the catechism is is a, a big part of that, so that we we constantly come back to these very basic things of the faith, which are always giving us the goods, the very center of it and the very... I don't know, edges maybe isn't the right word, but the but the very, you know, all of it, the the fullness of it and the center of it, we're constantly going between those two as pastors, putting it before the people, and as Christians making use of this in our daily lives. Does that make sense, Pastor Real? It does. And and if any of our if any of our listeners are thinking, oh, here these pastors go again talking about the importance of the catechism. Um and and maybe the the focus on the catechism will distract us from Jesus. Um, that gets said sometimes, and sometimes that makes sense. I, I get where that concern comes from. When I'm talking about catechism, I'm not referring to, to the little maroon book um, or to, you know, those pages in the hymnal um, of, you know, pages, what is it, 321 to 325, where the catechism is printed, uh, but rather the very center of the faith of what we have. And there's a number of ways that uh, the human flesh, the world around us, and even the devil tempt us away from that uh, center of the faith, from the good teaching that we have. And it's not because we want to emphasize Luther's catechism. At the end of the day, to emphasize the good doctrine of God is to emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus that changes absolutely everything. Uh, Paul's going to go on um, in a couple of verses. He's going to talk a, a little bit about exercise, uh, but he's going to say, you know, exercise, it's a good thing, but spiritual training, godliness and piety, that's a better thing. Uh, it's a value of every in every way, and it ends up being life-changing. When you are uh, being trained in godliness, theme throughout First Timothy, then your whole life is different because Jesus' death and resurrection for you, it doesn't just change what you do on Sunday morning. It doesn't just have emphasis maybe on, on how you vote or how you think or on your worldview. No, everything about you, dear Christian, has been changed because Jesus Christ has died and risen for you. Everything that you know is different because you are godly, and you are being trained by God in godliness and in piety, not to just show your neighbors, but because that is God's plan and God's will for you, and that is life-changing and a super big deal. And the, the theme of exercise, that is the picture that Paul does put into our minds, particularly in a verse, well, I guess it's the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, he, he uses a Greek word from which we get the English word gymnasium or gym. That's the, the you know, we talk about being nerds. We'll, we'll go there, Pastor Hill. That's <laughs> the, the, a gymnasium. So that's the sort of training. That's the picture that he gives. But here he's, he's emphasizing not the training that happens in, you know, what you and I would call a gymnasium, but the training that happens. Well, actually we've, we have Pastor Mize referred to the worship service as a liturgical dojo in our study of the book of Proverbs. And I like that. Like, I'm stealing it. Well, you, you can have Thank it you, too. Pastor Mize. That's right. So it sounds like Paul's got a, a bit of a dojo in mind here. We've got a, just a couple minutes before our break. Let's let's dig into that image here a little bit in 1 Timothy. Uh, so he, he does indeed have that. And here in 1 Timothy, he talks about uh, bodily training or, or the gymnasium, uh, which would be common to a lot of the Greek-speaking Christians from the, uh, from the Greek idea of Olympic games and athletic competitions. And the gymnasium was where the, the 
Greek Olympic athletes would go to compete, um, not only in things that we think of as gymnastics, but in in all forms of athletic games. Uh, in Philippians, Paul goes on and he talks about running. In other places, he talks about uh, he talks about the Christian life uh, akin to boxing. And Paul has this whole uh, thing about exercise, and uh, I guess a little bit tongue in cheek. It all it often makes me wonder: was was Paul one who was really committed and devoted to exercise, or was he referencing those things in his day? I know I have some pastor buddies who are big into uh, weightlifting. You know, they have their garage gym and their their workouts, and they uh, they're really physically fit and um, fine physical specimens. And then on the other hand, there's me. Um, I can talk about exercise, but uh, pretty please don't ask me about my exercise habits and routine uh, because it'll be a pretty short conversation. Um, it's it, it's not something that I'm really good at. Um, it's something that I'm endeavoring to get better at. But, you know, I know enough to say bodily training and exercise, that has some good. And so it doesn't really matter if Paul was big into exercise himself or if he was looking at the Christians that he was writing to and saying, running is good and a lot of you guys do that. Or uh, athletic training is good and a lot of you guys do that. Or boxing is good and, and you're familiar with that. Or if he's saying, these are things that I do. That doesn't matter. Do certainly take care of your body. But even more importantly, take care of yourself in the sense of godliness. Uh, or in piety, or in other places in the world, uh, when this idea was used, it was talked about in terms of reverence. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, November 2nd. We're looking at 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we really kind of skipped over verse 7 as we were having that conversation concerning the training in godliness. Verse 7 mentions irreverent, silly myths, and Timothy is to have nothing to do with these. How does that stand in contrast to the good doctrine, the words of faith, and the training in godliness that we've been talking about? So this is where Paul is actually pulling us back prior to verse 6 to what he was talking about earlier in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Uh, and he's referring to those myths as irreverent. And the second word that we translate as silly, uh, he's actually, uh, the Greek word is best translated as the old wivetail myths, um, which I think is just kind of fun. Um, in terms of things that you might uh, think about on your own logic or things that you might speculate or guess on your own, but when it talks about being irreverent, that's actually the very opposite of godliness. And so when it says irreverent, uh, I think I said prior to the break that this term of godliness was also used outside of the Bible in the Greek-speaking world to talk about reverence. And so when he talks about irreverent myths, he's talking about those things that are impious and ungodly, uh, those demonic and deceitful lies that he's warning about. And he's doubling down, saying, have nothing to do with that. But truly, your emphasis, Pastor Timothy, and all other pastors and all other Christians, is on those things that are reverent, that are godly, that are pious, that is about the death and resurrection of Christ, the good teaching and the good doctrine. And so, continue in that, because your godliness is found not in what you think, not in what other people think, not in what makes sense or what the world feels good about, but in what has been given by God. 
only God is good. Be a good servant of God in Christ Jesus and be committed to that good doctrine. Therefore, be committed to that godliness and that piety that comes from Jesus. Um, but I think um, using that word of piety, we might do well to, to stop for a second and say, what is piety? Sorry, Pastor Apple, you probably had a question in there. No, just keep going. Tell us about piety. Okay. So when we talk about piety, sometimes we talk about those Christian virtues uh, and uh, almost in a way of talking about like our uh, our piety points or our sanctification points, saying, see, I was a good Christian today when I did this or did that. But I don't think that that's the kind of piety that is being talked about here in 1 Timothy 7 and 8. Um, and throughout 1 Timothy, this idea of godliness and piety keeps coming back um, oh, more than half a dozen times, if, if my memory serves. Instead, it's talking about what we have received. The piety and the godliness that's seen in 1 Timothy isn't about what we do, but what we have received and what we have gotten. Uh, I know that um, I've, I got to read a really excellent book by Pastor Will Whedon on, on piety being uh, simply praying, confessing the creed, and doing those things that God has given us to do, not because we're so good, but because Jesus, the crucified and risen one, fulfills in us that piety and that godliness that we are unable to do. So we continue to be committed to who Jesus has made us, living out our faith and living out our sanctification and our godliness in fear and in trembling, as Peter would say in 1 Peter. And here we simply live according to that godliness, because it's what we have already received, not because it's something that we have to prove that we have. Does, does that distinction kind of make sense, Pastor Apple? That does. And, and what you said, I think, propels into what I think I was going to, to jump into, that we live according to what we've received in this piety. Paul talks about this godliness, this piety, being of value in every way, and he says, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So how does this piety hold that value both for this life and for the life to come? So we have Paul speaking in the now and the not yet. And this godliness, uh, I guess it's hard for us to make sense of it in our uh, English sense, but rather we have this gift that is given us by God. Uh, that applies not just in the now and not just in the not yet. Sometimes uh, Christians have received the charge of being uh, so heavenly minded that they are no, of oh, no earthly good. Um, but as Paul is speaking, he's not talking about um, either being earthly minded or heavenly minded. He is speaking about being godly minded. And being godly minded is true here and now but also then and in the not yet, in the day of the resurrection that has come, or that will have come. That's right. So then in verse 9, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We, get a, we have another trustworthy saying. Now, Pastor Ill, is the trustworthy saying what we just read in verse 8, or is the trustworthy saying what we're going to read in verse 10? I, you know... I am struggling with that too. As I was preparing to, to visit with you today about this, um, I think it's pushing ahead to verse 10. But at the end of the day, I think that they're both trustworthy sayings. Then they're both deserving of full acceptance. And I have a hard time picking um, one over the other. But usually when this, this phrase, uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, it's usually pushing ahead to the next thing that is being said, not to what is said previously. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess um, that it's going on into verse 10, kind of summing up these five verses and getting ready to push us into the next five. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm with you here too. That's how Paul's used it so far in, in this particular epistle. He's said, you know, back in chapter one, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then he gives you 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. We saw just the previous chapter, the saying is trustworthy about overseers, those who desire that office, desire a noble task. And and here too, I, I think it it's pushing forward. The, the only perhaps hesitation is that the trustworthy saying that's found in Titus chapter three, that saying is trustworthy seems to go with what was previous where Paul's talking about baptism and salvation there. But I, I think I'm with you here. So let's let's move to verse 10 then with that in, in verse 9. To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Assuming that this is the trustworthy saying, what's so memorable about this saying, Pastor Will? I think that uh, for me, the big part here is that God is the Savior of all people. And sometimes it it's typical for us to think of God as being my savior or as God being the savior of, of the church, but not on God being the savior of all people. Uh, I heard, I heard someone once say all people who die have, have died with Jesus dying and rising for their sins and their sins are forgiven. Those who are condemned though, simply don't believe that God is their savior. And so you're not judged because Jesus didn't die for you, but because you don't believe it. Um, And I find that to be a really helpful statement and saying, there is no one in this creation for whom Jesus Christ did not die. There is no one for whom the living God doesn't bring his gifts and his love. There are those who don't believe and who don't receive his love. And that is grievous. But at no point do we say Jesus died for some people. Uh, And so when you walk up to your friend or your neighbor, your family member, or a fellow member at church and say, Jesus Christ died for you, uh, at no point do you have to cross your fingers or wonder, did he really? Jesus Christ died for all people. He is the living God for all, not just for some. There is no one for whom Jesus didn't die. And if that's not a trustworthy saying, to be honest, I don't know what is. Uh, The Old Testament talks about God as Savior. uh, And usually when we talk about Savior, we think about Jesus. But here, Paul emphasizes that the living God ends up being Jesus Christ himself. Uh, The God who is present and revealed throughout the Old Testament is the crucified and resurrected and ascended one. He is the one who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. And that is really good news. And it is indeed a trustworthy saying. As Paul continues into verse 11, it's almost like he jumps back to verse six and he's, he's once again, urging Timothy now command and teach these things. What's the move that Paul makes now? I mean, it's, you get a new paragraph in the English translation, but as you said, that's not there in the Greek. What's, what's the move that he does seem to be making there such that it seems like it's a new paragraph. I, I kind of wonder if he said one thing, Uh, in the previous paragraph there in verses six through 10. And now he's coming back to his thesis statement and he's going to write another paragraph uh, that basically says the same thing in a different way. Um, And so he goes from focusing on the content. Don't talk about the silly irreverent myths, but rather be focused on godliness. And now he's going to show and illustrate what that godliness looks like, especially for Timothy. Uh, And so I think this is... Paul kind of expanding on what is godliness. And as you teach these things, how exactly do you do do that? Uh, What are the nuts and bolts of commanding and teaching these things that are talked about in verse six and in verse 11? So the, the first part of the nuts and bolts then of the commanding and teaching we mentioned before the break is the, the negative side of it is don't let others despise you because of your youth. So that's the negative side, but instead set an example. So that's the first nut and bolt, if you want to use that term. Don't let people despise you because you're young. Instead, set the believers an example. And that example is especially in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Uh, And I think think that's really important to make sure that we keep all of that in context. Because Oftentimes, it's tempting to want to take this and talk about the distinctions of young and old in the church. 
But Paul, as he writes to Timothy, is actually saying a pretty gutsy thing, and a thing that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, there's not a lot of times that I want to look at the Christians that I get to serve and say, hey, follow my example. Uh, I mean, that makes me vulnerable. It puts me at risk. It says that I'm doing this, uh, I'm living this Christian life, and I'm dedicated to godliness enough right that you should do what I do. You know, after me and into the battle we go. Uh, and I'm not always confident enough in my godliness to want to say that to the Christians that I get to serve. But Paul, throughout his epistles, has this idea of imitation. In Thessalonians, he sets himself up as an example, uh, writing in 1 Thessalonians that the, those Thessalonian Christians should, should do what he has done. They should follow his example. He speaks that way throughout his epistles. And he talks here about Timothy doing those very things until he comes, uh, and, he sent, and, and he, it's kind of assumed that he'll do the same things when he gets there. Uh, and so, in our speech, in our conduct, in our love, in our faith, and in our purity, we are to follow the example of Jesus, certainly, but also the example of Paul and the example of Timothy. Our pastors are held to a higher standard, and we are called to follow their example. And for all of us, we take the example given us in the church around us and in the church that has preceded us, and we endeavor to live in that pattern and in that example now and always. Um, not because that makes us uh, good or better Christians, but because those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the ones who follow Christ's example, and that is the example that we too are then to follow. I think that the talk of seeing a pastor as an example of Christian living is one that often makes us a bit uncomfortable. But you're right that Paul certainly sets himself as an example, and he speaks of Timothy here setting an example. And we want to understand it correctly. We need to keep it connected to the words of the faith and the good doctrine. That is one of the things that Paul says, set the believers an example in faith. So, I mean, it's it's always connected to that truth, that, to that healthy doctrine. We're not talking about your pastor being an example in the irreverent, silly myths or being an example, say, of, of which sports team he roots for, or even, you know, if in his, his health routine. We're talking about the example that he sets according to the good doctrine. And, and even as sometimes we're a bit uncomfortable with it, I think that it's, it's there, at least in the background, and we know that it's, it's something we should at least think about. And the example in my mind, and maybe you've experienced something similar, Pastor Ill, is that you walk in on a conversation as a pastor, and, and when you as pastor walk into that conversation, suddenly the conversation stops or, or suddenly there's a, a bit of a silence because perhaps the conversation was about things that they, the people who were a part of it knew were wrong or, or perhaps they were using language that didn't seem to be befitting a pastor. That, that's one that, that you chuckle about occasionally. Someone will, will use more, how I say, colloquial speech. And then they'll say, oh, sorry, pastor, I, I shouldn't have said that around you or something like that. And so I think I, I use that only as an example to say, I think we, we know this in the back of our minds that when we, when we are considering an action as to, you know, is this a part of my godliness or not? We would think in the back of our minds, at least, is this something that if my pastor saw, or is this something my, my pastor would do? It's, it's there, but it always has to be centered in that good doctrine, in the faith that places Jesus Christ first and foremost. I, I think that you're exactly right. And it it's a good reminder to pastors that all of our teaching and all of our doing is to deliver that good doctrine and to be good servants of Christ Jesus. And it's a good reminder to folks who aren't pastors, to our lay people, that when they look at their pastor, they should say, how is my good servant in Christ Jesus teaching me the good doctrine? Um, and we should be holding each other and ourselves accountable to, to that, to the good doctrine and to being a good servant of, excuse me, of Christ Jesus. Hmm. And, and part of this too, and just, just briefly, and then we'll move on, is that 
part of the example that Paul sets, that Timothy sets, that your pastor sets, is that very first trustworthy saying, the confession, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's a part of the example, is confessing sin in front of Christ and being justified in him alone. And we should never forget that. I think it, it is easy to to look at, I mean, I know I do this as a pastor. I look at, at Paul's example. I think, boy, I could never do that. Like, I just, I just can't. I can't do the things that Paul does. And and in the example that he sets, that's the first thing that he comes with is the confession of who he is as a sinner for whom Christ died. And I, I just, we never want to forget that. Right. And and dear listeners, I I know that it's November now, um, but I know that recently my congregation, you know, pulled me aside and said, "Hey, it's October. Uh, that's Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to make sure that you that you know that we appreciate you." I, that that was wonderful. But dear listeners who aren't pastors, lay people, do this gift of appreciation for your pastor. Pull him aside, whisper in his ear uh, in a socially distant, kind way, "Hey, pastor, I appreciate you, and you." set this good example for me in faith and in doctrine. But as you set an example in your own repentance and in receiving the gifts of God, where do you go to get spiritual care? Who's your pastor? How are you cared for as a Christian? And what does your practice of living in repentance and faith look like as you get to hear God's word and not only speak it? I think that that's one of the greatest things you can do to appreciate your pastor is to say, hey, pastor, you're my example in hearing God's word and in living a life of repentance. So so you're doing that, right? Uh, not in a way to guilt him or to shame him, but simply to make sure that that he knows that he is your example in hearing God's word of forgiveness and in receiving that peace that passes all understanding. Sorry, there's my my throwaway pastor appreciation comment for the month of November. Not not a throwaway, but an important reminder. Indeed. Sorry, a tangent. There we go. There we go. As Paul continues with the nuts and bolts of how Timothy is to command and teach, and we've got about six minutes here, Pastor Ill. He continues in verse 13, he talks about devoting yourself to several things, so we can pick up any any of those that you want. He talks about not neglecting the gift that you have. He talks about in verse 15, practicing things, immerse yourself in them, let others see, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. I mean, all of these imperatives are, are coming out as these nuts and bolts for Timothy. Again, with about six minutes, let's let's pick up some of those. Okay, so in verse 13, Paul talks about uh, being devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That sounds an awful lot like sermons to me. And here we want to be clear that we don't um, overly disconnect reading the Bible in public, which is a good thing, from preaching and teaching. And so Paul, Paul says, in your preaching, make sure that you're reading the Bible. Exhort, teach. And, and then he goes on in verse 14 uh, to talk about Timothy's ordination. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, talking about when, when Timothy became a pastor and was set aside for that work. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, it also implies that Paul himself was there and laid hands on Timothy as well. Uh, and so he says, this gift that you have, I think this is a really important thing to pause on for a second. The gift here is the gift of the office and the responsibility that was given uh, to Timothy publicly when the elders and pastors laid their hands on him. It's not referring to any kind of special charismatic gift or any kind of of, uh, spiritual power that comes especially on those who are pastors. Instead, this is simply the gift of the position uh, and the gift of the responsibility that you have. And so we don't look at pastors and say, oh, because you're a pastor and you wear your funny pastor clothes and those vestments, because you've gone to school for a long time, you have some kind of special spiritual gift. No, we have the gift of God. The gift that was given us is that gift and trust of the office of the ministry, speaking the word of God and and even with fear and trembling, speaking God's forgiveness to repentant Christians. And so that's the gift, not any kind of, of magical pastor powers. Um, I, uh, I'm certainly not worthy of magical pastor powers. 
And I don't think here in First Timothy, it talks about magical pastor powers. It talks about this gift of the office that in fear and trembling, we speak God's word to God's Christians. It, pastor Apple, does that make sense? It, it does. And I, I think you're right to see that gift in that light, particularly as, as Paul continues. And I think the, the place to, to bring our conversation to a, a close is in verse 16. Absolutely. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. With about two minutes, Pastor Hill, take us in that verse. Help us wrap things up this morning. I think that verse 16 ties right back into verse 6. When you keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, it ends up that you are a good servant in Christ Jesus and that you are committed to the good doctrine, not only for yourself, because being committed to being a good servant of Christ Jesus and the good doctrine, that's good for you. But you know what? It's good when that's done for the whole church. When Pastor Timothy keeps a close eye on himself and on the teaching, he is a good servant in Christ Jesus, and he is committed to the doctrine. But that also is true for those Christians in Pastor Timothy's care. That's also true for pastors today who are good servants of Christ Jesus, devoted to the good doctrine, and to those Christians in their care who themselves see their good, uh, their good servant of Christ Jesus, committed to Jesus, living, uh, engaged in that godliness who are committed to that godliness and that piety themselves, and who are saved by Jesus. After all, he is the living God, the crucified and the resurrected one who has saved you. And your pastor does nothing other than to speak to you the forgiveness of your sins that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus, the living God, who has brought you that good teaching and that good doctrine of your salvation. Sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in if your pastor is a good pastor or not, if he's doing the right thing or not. But ask this question, how is my pastor a good servant of Christ Jesus, and how is my pastor devoted to the good doctrine given him by God? Celebrate and rejoice in those things, because ultimately, it's not about your pastor. It's not about Timothy or any other pastor. No, it's about Jesus. And your pastor, just like Pastor Timothy, comes to deliver Jesus, the living God, to you for the forgiveness of your sins and so that you have life now and forever. Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. God's blessings to you and to all of our listeners. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.